the Bible with this morning or your scripture journal, go ahead and open up to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We are back in Titus after a quick one-week excursion to Psalm 2 to continue to examine the theme of how grace works, the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ works in us to produce godliness, to produce works that are in accordance with God's character. I planned this text this way because I thought it would be helpful for us to come back into Titus on a text that deals with how are we to respond to outsiders, those outside of the church, unbelievers, like those in government and in authority, or just unbelievers in general. It seemed to me that this might be on our minds and on our hearts the weekend after the election. And so my hope is that as we read this text and as we examine this text, our hearts would be moved to have God's heart towards the unbeliever, to have God's heart towards those who are outside of his kingdom. Paul begins this text with remind, the word remind in verse 1, and ends our section, verse 8, with talking about insisting on these things. Paul is giving us, through what he's writing to Titus, the priorities for Titus as a church leader, and for the church in Crete. And so he's giving us also the priorities for us, for me as a pastor and a preacher of the gospel, and for us as a church family. How are we to respond to the culture around us? That's what we're going to look at today. In light of that, let's read the text, Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Paul wants... Titus to remind the church of a few things. And he starts off in verses 1 to 2 saying, Titus, remind God's people what they're to do. 
remind God's people to do good, specifically here, to unbelievers. In Titus 2, 1 to 15, Paul was writing to Titus, telling him how to relate to those inside the church, right? Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger men all to be godly, to be self-controlled. Do this in light of what God has done, Titus. Teach the church this way. And now here in verses 1 to 8, Paul is transitioning a bit to say, Titus, act this way towards all people, specifically those who are outside of the church. He's got two categories he addresses in verses 1 to 2. In verse 1, he's really leaning more towards those in authority, right? Remind God's people to submit to those, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then he broadens it a little bit more in verse 2, when he gets all the way to the end of verse 2 and sums up, show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's not just talking about those in governments, talking about all people in general. So I want to take those two categories one at a time. First of all, remind God's people, Titus, to do good to unbelievers by submitting to authorities. I'm going to try to resist the temptation to preach a bonus sermon on how we relate to authority, but I think it's important enough in our current situation that we dig a little bit deeper here. Okay, so I want to think real briefly, what does the Bible teach about authority? Why would Paul start with authority here? What does the Bible teach about authority? In Romans 13, 1, the Bible teaches that all authority stems from God. All authority is instituted by God. There is no authority that comes outside of God and his authority. All authority is under the authority of God, first of all. The Bible also teaches in Romans 13, 3 to 4, and 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, that authority, <clears throat> authority is meant for your good. Authority is meant for your good, and it's meant to punish evil and to praise good. To punish evil and to praise good. Authority is meant to do good by punishing evil and rewarding good. We are called in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, as we saw when we went through 1 Timothy, to pray for those in authority. To pray for those in authority to the end that authority may accomplish its purpose, which is to promote peace. To promote a peaceful society where the gospel can flourish. It's good, Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, it's good that we pray for all those in authority, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. God wants that because he desires that all are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So authority is meant to do good, to promote peaceful society for the sake of the gospel flourishing. <clears throat> we are called in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter 2 to submit to authorities. We're also called here in Titus 3. Verse 1, submit, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient. The only exception we see to that in Scripture is the Acts of the Apostles. In Acts chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, and in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the Apostles basically say they're, they're told to stop teaching 
the word of God. Stop proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And they say, whether, whether it's wrong for us to do so, you, you be the judge, but we ha- cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. We must obey God rather than man when it comes to sharing the truth of the gospel. It's the only exception we see in scripture for submitting to rightful authorities. The implication then for this text is that when Titus, Paul writes to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He's not saying as long as you agree with that authority. He's not saying as long as that authority is good and godly. He's not even saying as long as that authority is not evil. He is saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, even to ungodly authorities. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute. Stick with me here. Even to ungodly authorities. See, it's easy to submit to authorities we agree with. It's easy to be happy with the umpire when he's calling the game your way, right? But when he starts making calls that you don't like, it gets a little harder. It starts to chafe on you. It's harder... To submit to an authority we don't agree with. There is no necessary reason for Paul to write to Titus, remind those in Crete to submit to authorities that they like and agree with. Right? That would be redundant. That would be purposeless. Instead, Paul is writing to say, remind them to submit even to authorities they don't agree with. This is challenging for me and I imagine for many of you right now in the midst of this COVID crisis. I want to share where I'm at, not for the sake of trying to convince you, but trying to help you see how I chafe against this command. That's, to me, I don't like wearing masks. I also see the statistics and the numbers and the situation of COVID, and it doesn't seem to me like masks are necessary. I don't agree with the authority's mandate to force everybody to wear masks. But I'm still called to submit to that rightful authority, whether I like it or not, because they are not commanding me to run counter to the word of God, right? So I'm called, we're called to submit to authorities we don't agree with, and that should chafe against us. We should not like that because we don't naturally want to submit to authorities we don't agree with. It's even harder when that authority is advocating evil. It seems very likely that Biden has won the presidency and that Biden is clearly going to advocate for abortion and for the sexual revolution, a rejection of God's good design in creating men and women. As Biden advocates for these evil things, it can be tempting to reject outright any sense of legitimate authority from him. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying, remind God's people to submit to authorities, even ungodly ones, except in the circumstances of it calling you to do something ungodly. So in other words, we will resist the sexual revolution. We will resist the legitimacy of homosexual marriage because we clearly see things contrary to that in Scripture. We will resist the legitimation, the legitimacy of abortion because we clearly see it as murder from Scripture. But we are called in other ways to submit 
if Biden does gain the presidency to his legitimate authority as president of our country. And we might chafe against that. That's really hard if that's not what we wanted, if that's not what we desired. We are called not just to submit here, but to proactively do good, to be ready for every good work. In other words, we can't just wholly huddle and hope to be left alone. We have to look for opportunities to do good, even to leaders who are ungodly. Why on earth would Paul tell us to do that? It makes little sense, it feels, to us. Why would he tell us to do that? All through Titus, Paul has been talking about the importance of authority and the importance of how those outside the church see authority and response to authority within the church. The first reason we need to, Paul calls us to, calls Titus to remind the church to submit to rulers and authorities is for the sake of gospel witness so that the opponents, as he says in verses chapter 2, verse 7, will have nothing evil to say about us. They won't be able to say, you Christians are a bunch of anarchists. You Christians only like authority when it agrees with you. They won't be able to accuse us of responding to Biden's presidency in a way that is different than we would have responded to Trump's presidency. They won't be able to accuse us of such hypocrisy when it comes to submission to authorities and rulers. So for witness is the first reason, but even more, it's for the sake of our good. See, in Titus chapter 1, we see that what characterizes false teachers is they are insubordinate, Titus 1.10. They are disobedient, Titus 1.16. They reject God's good authority. Furthermore, Paul has just told Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, look at this. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Pastors are called to exhort and rebuke with all authority for the good of God's people. And if we, as God's people, develop the habit of only submitting to the authority we like or the authority we agree with, we will never be able to submit to the legitimate authority of God in the church. We will reject pastors calling us to account for our sins or even members, one another. But even more than that, we will reject the authority of God's word. Because if we only submit to authorities that we like and agree with, We will only submit to God's word when we like it and agree with it. And as sinners, we won't like and agree with God's word often. So it is for our good. Submitting to authorities and rulers that we do not like, that are ungodly, to the extent we can, and still remain in obedience to God's word, that trains us to submit to God's word, and it trains us to submit to church discipline. So my question for us to evaluate, how do you evaluate how you're responding? This takes so much wisdom, friends. I think we can ask ourselves, do my words and do my actions communicate that authority is good? Do my words and my actions communicate that authority is good? And is my heart disposed to submit to authority? There may be good and godly reasons why we must not submit to authority when authority calls us to disobey God's word. 
But in general, is our heart inclined towards submitting to God through submitting to authority? We're called to do this. I think that's one of the hardest things we're facing right now from this text. But Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 2, he says to Titus, Remind God's people to do good to unbelievers by showing perfect courtesy towards all. And that towards all is really important. See, he says, show perfect courtesy, which another way to say that is just, is just to show, show humble mercy. To not count yourself most significant. To not think most highly of your own opinion. But to instead, in verse 2, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. Speak evil of no one even when they deserve it. Avoid quarreling even though they're wrong. Be gentle even though you don't feel like it and you've had a bad day. Show perfect courtesy toward all. That all people, combined with what Paul says next in verse 3, where he describes our state as wicked sinners before being saved, means that Paul is saying here, Titus, remind God's people to show perfect courtesy, especially toward wicked sinners. Not just friendly people, nice people. It's pretty easy for me to show perfect courtesy when no one bothers me and when they treat me nicely. Right? I imagine it is for you too. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what God's people need to be reminded about. We need to be reminded that we show perfect courtesy, humble mercy, especially towards wicked sinners who do us wrong. See, our mercy is often conditional. We might extend mercy, but often it's predicated on the person seeking mercy. Sure, I can let it go when you're asked to, right? I can can look past that. I can be merciful. You're trying to do better next time? Okay. I know if any of you ever do this with your kids, your mercy is a little bit conditional because they're going to try to do better and they better try to do better. That's not what the mercy of God is like. When we extend that kind of mercy towards wicked sinners, that's not true mercy, and it actually lies about the mercy of God. See, God's people need to be reminded to do good to unbelievers because that's contrary to what is naturally in our heart as sinners. Verse 3, Paul draws this out. Titus, remind God's people who they were. Verse 3, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were, as sinners, like the ungodly authorities. We were foolish, just as those authorities who rage against God are foolish. We were led astray by sin and temptation, deceived by the devil, just like those ungodly rulers who call good evil and evil good. We were no different. We were no different than the wicked sinner enslaved to our passions enslaved to the pursuit of pleasure at all costs, enslaved and filled with malice and envy 
and hatred. That was the condition of all of us before we came to know Christ. If you are in Christ, that was what you were like, whether you realized it all or not. If you are not in Christ, that's still what you're like because you are still trapped in your sin. That's the condition of all. When Paul says we ourselves were once foolish, he's including himself in that because we are all united. All of us in Christ are united as those who were once wretched, who were once wicked sinners in need of a savior. But even now, even now echoes remain. I imagine for many of you, especially if you grew up in the church or if you were pretty good before you were saved. I was pretty good. I was a good kid. If you were like that, it may be hard to remember. Like, I don't remember passing my days in envy and malice and things like that, right? Like, my heart is dull to the severity of my own sin. And I imagine yours is too. But if that's the case, just think about, even now, how we still struggle to do good to unbelievers. The struggle to do good to unbelievers, to show mercy to those who don't deserve it, reveals the poverty of our own hearts, reveals our own wickedness, reveals the echoes of what we once were and our continued need for mercy. As a believer, you may find, if you haven't already, you will, that the more you come to know Christ and his sinless perfection, the more aware of your own sinfulness, your own poverty you become. Being saved by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus should not drive us to view ourselves more highly. It should drive us to view ourselves more humbly. It should drive us to have a humble view of ourselves and then extend patient mercy towards others because they're just like we were. There is no difference you had much more in common with the most wicked, evil sinner that you can think of before you knew Christ than you did with Christ. And the same goes true for me. Paul says, we ourselves, it's all of us. So Paul says, remind God's people to do good to unbelievers because you were in that same state. But Paul's appeal is not just, it's not mere empathy. Paul's not saying do good to sinners because you can relate. He's driving a more important point home because just relating and saying, man, I was there too. I know what you're talking about. I know what you're going through. I have empathy with you. I have sympathy. Doing that doesn't solve our heart problem that we won't show mercy when we don't want to, that we won't show mercy when rubbed the wrong way, that we won't submit to rightful authorities when we disagree. What Paul is calling Titus to remind God's people to do runs counter to the nature of our hearts. But it doesn't run counter to the nature of God's heart. That's Paul's argument. When he says in verses 4 to 7, he says this. We were this way in verse 3. But verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us, but it wasn't because... It wasn't because, in verse 5, of works done by us in righteousness. This is Paul directly contradicting the easiest misunderstanding of his whole point in Titus, which is grace works. The grace of God in the gospel produces godliness and requires godliness. And that can easily lead us to think that it's the godliness that earns the grace. But Paul says here, no. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is nothing new. This is a reminder. We know this. But, he says in the second part of verse 5, according to his own mercy. Why did God save you? Because God is merciful. Why did God save me? Because God is merciful. It's because of who God is according to his own mercy. This reveals what is fundamental to God's heart. That's why Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, the salvation of God manifests what's at the core of his heart, which is a predisposition to show mercy. See, God doesn't need a reminder. God doesn't need to be reminded or, or for someone to insist on the fact that he shows mercy. Because he is eternally predisposed to show mercy to sinners. This is fundamental to who God is. He says this when he reveals his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Listen to how he describes himself to Moses. Exodus 34 verses 6 to 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God passes before Moses and declares the fundamental truth of who he is. And who is it? It's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Notice even when he says, he says, forgiving iniquity and transgression, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping this for how many generations? For thousands of generations. And how long will he remember sin and iniquity and call to judgment? three or four generations. It doesn't even compare. God is weighted in his heart, predisposed to show mercy to sinners. What this means then, what Paul is saying here in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, is that God saved us in spite of what was in our heart, because of what was in his, because of the fundamental nature of mercy in his heart. Now, this reveals the problem with obeying the exhortations in verses 1 to 2. How can we submit to ungodly authorities? And how can we do good to wicked sinners? When the whole reason God did good to us as wicked sinners 
is because his heart is filled with mercy. Mercy flows from the heart. And we are called to show that same kind of mercy, but from sinners' hearts, mercy doesn't flow. Wickedness flows. Self-justification flows. Selfishness flows. Malice and envy flows. Hatred flows. How can we obey this command? How can we do what God is calling us to? The answer is in how God mercifully saved us. Paul continues in verse 5. God saved us according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, this text, when Paul is writing this way, he's referring to a promise that God made to his people all the way back in Ezekiel 35. Excuse me, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. God promised this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. See, when Paul talks about the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that's poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, he's talking about God doing this very thing. Through the Spirit, cleansing us from sin and unrighteousness. Removing our heart of stone, doing heart surgery on us. So that the heart we have is no longer our own. But it's one that's newly gifted to us by God, our merciful Savior. It's a heart now that through the Holy Spirit is able to reflect the mercy of God. It's a heart that is now more naturally pulled towards mercy than it is towards selfishness and self-rule. This new heart that God has given us through the Holy Spirit richly poured out on us, is now suited to a new purpose, which Paul says in verse 7. Our new purpose, being justified by God's grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saved us mercifully so that we could become heirs, those who share in an inheritance. What is that inheritance? It's the hope of eternal life. Sharing the life of God, sharing the life that God has always enjoyed since before the foundation of the world in the triune Father, Son, and Spirit, Godhead. Sharing in that, but then as heirs, as those who are now called sons and daughters of God, displaying that same heart disposition that God has, displaying The merciful heart of God in what we do. See, that's how grace works in us. Grace, the grace of God works to magnify the mercy of God. Because it's God's grace that has to work in us to change us. God did this heart surgery and now through the spirit, he is moving us to act out this heart surgery 
in how we act with one another to display the work of God's grace towards ungodly sinners, ungodly authorities, those who we would be most naturally inclined to be harsh to, to be combative towards, to be hateful towards. God has now given us this heart that is inclined towards mercy. Paul sums all of this up for the church when he says in verse 8, he says, the saying is trustworthy. God is merciful. This is a trustworthy saying. God has shown you mercy you don't deserve. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, by insisting on the gospel of grace, when we insist on that as God's people to one another, when we insist on that, that drives us then to be careful to devote ourselves to magnifying the mercy of God through good works towards others. When we insist that God was merciful to us and that God has transformed us and given us a new heart that takes away every excuse we would use for why we don't want to submit to authorities we don't like and why we don't want to show perfect courtesy towards sinners who rub us the wrong way. It take, not only it takes away every excuse, friends, but it actually gives us the ability to not be just slaves to those passions, but to be slaves instead to righteousness that God has given us in Christ Jesus. When Paul says, remind God's people about these things, insist on these things, be careful to do these things. He is saying that to Titus because what's true of the church is we need to hear this repeatedly. We need the mercy of God and our godliness that's a necessary response called out to us over and over and over again because we forget. Because we stray from showing mercy. Our hearts are new, but our flesh still pulls us back into old patterns. We need to be reminded repeatedly as we encourage one another, as we fellowship together and remind each other of the mercy of God and the call to be merciful, as we hear God's word proclaimed from the pulpit, this is one of the purposes of preaching. It's not telling you something you don't already know most of the time. It's reminding you of what God has done and what God requires. This is the purpose of the habits of grace, reading our Bibles, praying, Coming and receiving the Lord's table. Remembering our baptism. All of these things conspire together to help us live in accordance with the new hearts we have received. But even if these things conspire together and move us to live in accordance with the new hearts we received. And we begin to show godliness. Which should happen as you mature in Christ. No matter how much we mature, because we live in the already not yet, we will never outgrow our need for the mercy of God. Never. But we will never outsin the riches of the mercy of God. As our struggle to follow God continues, and as we continually rely on the mercy of God that is abundantly poured out 
on us in Christ Jesus, our constant indebtedness to mercy, what that does is that magnifies the beauty of the mercy of God. It shows the watching world as we strive to be submissive to rulers and authorities, even ungodly ones that don't deserve it. And as we strive to treat even wicked sinners who abuse us with perfect courtesy, with humble gentleness and mercy, as we do this and we lean on the mercy of God for ourselves, we magnify his mercy and we teach others to help in that mercy too. We testify to the truth of the gospel. That's what it's about. We need the Spirit to help us do that though, so let's pray and ask God's help. God, you have richly poured out your Spirit on us through Jesus Christ. And so we have everything we need to obey these commands. And yet, God, we confess our hearts, even though they're new, often feel weak. Our flesh seems so much stronger. God, would you help us for our sake, for our good, so that we can learn the goodness of your authority and we can learn the sweetness of your mercy? And would you help us for the sake of those around us who don't know what it is to trust in a merciful God and who still pass their days in envy and malice and hatred? Would you help us be merciful to those around us to call others to hope in the mercy of Christ? We pray that even now you would strengthen our collective memory of your mercy as we come to your table. In Jesus' name.